Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and the City College of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top news in science and technology. The lead story today concerns the Delta mutation of the coronavirus. It's causing a huge controversy spilling over into the politics of whether or not you can forcibly mandate people to be inoculated. So we'll talk about the pros and cons about the Delta variation of the coronavirus, and also whether or not there's going to be a booster shot offered perhaps later this year or early next year, and what should you do, especially if you've already been vaccinated against the virus. And then, because of all the news concerning flying saucers and UFOs and UAPs, it's caused a debate even within the physics community. Some physicists believe that we should, well, listen in on conversations between alien civilizations in outer space. That's called the SETI project. But there's also a new program called the METI project, which believes that we should advertise our existence to the aliens in outer space. We should reach out and make contact with them and deliberately announce our existence. Well, I personally think that's a horrible idea, but recently the New York Times asked me to be part of a debate, a debate that you can now hear on the internet about whether or not we should reach out and announce our existence to alien civilizations in outer space. And also news from the medical front. The proton folding problem is one of the thorniest problems of people looking at the genomics of life. You see, when a protein molecule folds up, it determines how effective it is and what it does in the human body. So the Human Genome Project was great, but it's like a dictionary with thousands and thousands of words with no definitions. Well, it's good to know what the words are. It's good to know how to spell the words. But you want to know what these words do. And that's what the Human Genome Project cannot do. However, protein folding may be the way by using computer programs, artificial intelligence, to mathematically figure out what thousands of proteins do inside the human body. This is a breakthrough which was announced by the creators of the DeepMind computer program. And also on the medical front, the question is, well, why do we get old anyway? Why do we have to die of old age? Well, one possible clue to this is something called telomeres. Telomeres are at the end of the chromosome. They get shorter after every reproduction. After 60 reproductions, they get so short that the chromosome flies apart, cells age, become senescent, and eventually die. In other words, there is a clock, a biological clock built into every cell of the body. But can you control that cell? Can you control that gene that controls telomerase? Well, the answer could be yes. And so we'll talk about a rather interesting discovery, not the complete discovery, but the discovery of, well, why do we get old? Why do we have to die anyway? 
Why is it that some animals live longer than other animals? Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. There is a raging national debate, actually an international debate, about the Delta virus. At least in the United States, over half the population has now been vaccinated. But what about the other half? Well, some of them are very young and are not allowed to get vaccinated. But what about those people eligible to be vaccinated but hold out? Some people think that they are endangering the rest of the population. Their bodies, they claim, are incubators. Incubators for the coronavirus. And the coronavirus is then, then going to go into the next cycle of infection unless we vaccinate everybody. Well, what are the pros and cons to this? Well, it depends on how effective the vaccine really is. The Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are over 90% effective, which is astonishing. And that result comes from analyzing the data from millions of individuals, not just a handful of individuals. So the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are some of the most effective vaccines ever to leave the laboratory. But how long do they last? Well, there's a report from Israel claiming that perhaps the effectiveness drops from 95% to maybe 80% or so with time. And what about Pfizer itself? Pfizer now admits that yes, the effectiveness of its vaccine is dropping from 95% to perhaps around 84% or so with time. As a consequence, the Pfizer company is now advocating a booster shot, a booster shot after perhaps six months to a year. Even though it's extraordinarily effective, it could be helped by having a booster shot. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, says that if you are indoors, then perhaps you should take out that mask. So don't throw away your mask anytime soon, because it still means that the virus is still circulating. The Delta virus, we now realize, is more infectious, 60% more infectious than the Alpha variety. And the Alpha variety, in turn, was more infectious than the original coronavirus, which created this explosion of disease around the world. However, in terms of lethality, in terms of the people it actually kills, it turns out that the Delta virus is probably not more lethal than previous versions. So in other words, vaccinated people are still largely immune from the Delta virus. This means that the current explosion we see in the United States and in Europe due to the Delta version is an epidemic among the unvaccinated. That's right. The people who are unvaccinated, according to the data, are the ones that's causing the spike in infections around the United States and around Europe. Now, what about the objections to vaccinations? Well, some people say that, well, it's not tested thoroughly and they're not going to take the vaccine unless it's 100% certain. Well, let's be fair about this. That's not the way science is done. Nothing is 100% effective. There are exceptions to any rule, but you have to look at the statistics. You, look, you have to look at the probability 
by analyzing data now from millions of people around the world. Yes, vaccinations are not perfect, but hey, who wants to come down with the virus with a chance of death? Moreover, you're also gambling not just with your life, but you're gambling with the lives of people surrounding you, especially the young. The young are not necessarily vaccinated yet. As a consequence, they are susceptible to being infected by the Delta variation. And so that's why I say that people who are not yet convinced should say to themselves, for their benefit and for the benefit of the young, they indeed should get vaccinated. Now, of course, this is how science is done. Science is not like a movie where everything is 100% yes or 100% no. But the effectiveness of the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are extraordinary. Usually we never see a vaccine this effective. And as a consequence, by looking at the side effects, we realize that yes, there are some side effects, but it is infinitesimal compared to the side effects of getting the disease itself. Also in the news, we've had quite a few stories about UFOs, flying saucers, and UAPs, as they're now called. And this is actually stimulating a controversy within the scientific community. Scientists are usually hesitant to talk about flying saucers and UFOs because, of course, that's tainted with all the hoaxes and all the hearsays that are out there. But look, science has to go where the data is going. And the military has unleashed hours of videotapes saying that, well, yeah, something seems to be out there that violates the known abilities of our craft. For the first time, the military has now admitted that they are not ours. Before, you could always say that it was some kind of hidden project that we're cooking up deep in the laboratory someplace. But the military has now pretty much admitted that, nope, these objects can perform gyrations that we are incapable of, and they are not our own. Which means that within the scientific community, there's a split occurring now. There's something called the SETI project, and we've had a number of leaders of the SETI project on this program, that is a search for extraterrestrial intelligence. They're the ones that spend millions of dollars eavesdropping on conversations, radio conversations, between alien civilizations. So far, they have found nothing. Nothing. Radio silence in the heavens. But they are true believers. They say that the odds are overwhelming that there is intelligent life and intelligent civilizations in space. But what about the Medi Project? The Medi Project wants to reach out and advertise our presence to these aliens. Perhaps they're benevolent. Perhaps they'll usher in an age of Aquarius. Perhaps they'll share their vast scientific information with us. Other people say that maybe there's a cosmic zoo out there. And these advanced civilizations treat us like we treat animals. And so we try to protect animals, don't we? And so maybe these aliens view themselves as benevolent zookeepers. Well, anyway, the New York Times asked me and one of the founders of the Medi Project to debate this question. So my position was pretty clear. And that is, announcing our existence 
to an alien advanced civilization without knowing what they want, without knowing what their intentions are, without knowing what they're all about, would be one of the greatest mistakes in the history of human civilization. Just look at the record. One of the greatest mistakes in ancient history took place in Mexico when Montezuma, the leader of the Aztecs, made one of the greatest mistakes in ancient history. That is, he thought that Cortez was a god. Well, we now know that, of course, Cortez was not a god. He was a bloodthirsty pirate looking for gold. And he would stop at nothing, even destroying civilizations to get that gold. And let's talk about the science between these two civilizations. The Spaniards had gunpowder. The Aztecs did not. The Aztecs could be slaughtered as a consequence. The Spaniards had steel. The Aztecs had bronze weapons, bronze weapons that could easily be splintered apart by steel weapons because the Aztecs were a Bronze Age civilization. The Spaniards had the horse. The Aztecs had nothing like that. They used basically manual labor because of the fact that the horse, the North American horse, went extinct thousands of years ago. The Aztecs did not have a written language. They had a pictorial language, but not a written one. The Spaniards had a written language. And the Spaniards eventually brought with them not only these incredible weapons, but also smallpox and European diseases. Well, it was not a contest. A civilization like the Aztecs, which took 10,000 years to rise from the end of the last ice age, that ancient civilization was destroyed within a matter of months. Now, if you look at history, and you realize the interactions between two empires, with one empire being vastly more superior in weaponry than the other, the outcome is horrible, pathetic. We're talking about a wipeout, and this has happened repeatedly throughout the history of civilizations. Look at the way the Roman Empire would simply roll right over the barbarians, because the Romans had, ro had roads, the Romans had catapults, they had advanced weapons and tactics and communication systems that the barbarians did not. It was no contest, especially in the early days of the Roman Empire. And also think of it from the lens of evolution. When animals bump into each other, they realize that food is scarce. Resources are scarce, and they fight for them. And the fittest usually wins. And so some people say that this could apply to the universe in general. Not a biological Darwinian evolution, but physics. Physics says that energy is scarce. Resources that allow you to harness the power of energy is scarce. Therefore, organisms will fight, will fight to capture these resources. And that's a law of physics, not just a law of Darwinian biology. And so when civilizations in outer space bump into each other, watch out. Now also, the fundamental rule of negotiating is know your enemy. That's the fundamental rule. What does your enemy want? 
Some people say, well, the aliens are so advanced, they're not going to want gold like Cortez. They'll want to open up their arms and share their technology with us. Well, take a look at science fiction, where, of course, we have numerous examples of explaining what the aliens might want. No, they're not going to want gold. But look at War of the Worlds. In War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells envisioned the fact that the Martians wanted our planet. No, they didn't want gold. They wanted the Earth. Mars was a dying planet. In order to escape planetary death, the Martians had to push Earthlings out of the way. Now, the Martians didn't hate Earthlings. The Martians weren't evil in that sense. They were just amoral. We were just in the way. We had to be pushed out because the Martian civilization was dying because their planet was dying. So what did the Martians want? Our planet. Or for that matter, take a look at Star Trek. In Star Trek, we have the Borg. And the Borg, well, what do they want? They want us. They want our mind. They want our technology. They want to re reduce our civilization to a beehive. And in other words, there is something that the aliens would want. In this case, our minds, our technology. And then take a look at the movie Independence Day. In the movie Independence Day, what were the aliens like? They were like locusts. They would come in and basically devour every single scrap of food and energy like locusts devouring the countryside. So in other words, there's plenty of things that aliens would want. Nope, the aliens are not going to want gold. They're not going to want the things that we sometimes treasure like jewelry. They can probably manufacture artificial jewelry as much as they want. But they may want something that we have that they don't. They may want our planet. They may want our minds. They may want all scraps of energy. So my personal attitude is, A, they're probably out there. I mean, after all, we've already discovered over 4,000 planets circling other stars. We now have a census of the Milky Way galaxy. We now know that on average, every star you see at night, I repeat, on average, every star you see at night has a planet going around them. And roughly 20% of them are Earth-like planets. So how many civilizations could there be out there? Billions. Billions upon billions of planets capable of fostering life, oceans, maybe DNA, microbial life, who knows? But maybe some of them are benevolent. You can't rule it out. But that's not the way history has shown us. Not to mention the fact that if energy is scarce, civilizations will fight. Civilizations will fight to secure that energy source. And so I personally think it's a bad idea. Now, if you're wandering in the forest and you bump into a bunch of ants, do you go down to the ants and say, I bring you trinkets, I bring you beads, I'll create an ant zoo, I will protect you, take me to your ant queen. Is that what you say to the ants? Or do you have this sudden politically incorrect urge to step on a few of those ants? So in other words, if they're that advanced that they could reach us from out of space, 
It means probably they've mastered the art of going faster than the speed of light. To do that, you have to have new physics, physics beyond the Large Hadron Collider, our most powerful machine. In fact, a quadrillion times more powerful than the Large Hadron Collider. So if these aliens can reach us from out of space, the distance separating us from the aliens is much, much larger than the distance between us and the ants. So what do we do with the ants? Well, sometimes we step on them. Sometimes we simply pave them over. I mean, what does the deer fear the most? The guy with the shotgun? The, the, the hunter with a shotgun and bullets? Is that what the deer fears? Or perhaps the mild-mannered man with a briefcase who's a developer? Well, the developer can just pave the entire forest, and the deer are simply pushed out of the way. So in other words, the people who believe in the Medi Project think that the aliens are benevolent, and they're going to want to share their technology with us, they're going to bring us peace and prosperity. And my attitude is, well, maybe. But if I'm in Las Vegas and I take bets and the prize is the history and the future of civilization itself, I would not bet the history and the future of civilization itself on this idea that the aliens are benevolent zookeepers. Maybe they are. Chances are they're not. So why should we gamble? Why should we gamble thinking that the aliens are benevolent? That's why I think that we should listen for them. We should keep our eyes and ears open for the evidence of intelligent life. But for God's sake, don't advertise our existence because one day somebody may pick up those messages and say to themselves, ah, a new source of energy. Also, in the computer world, there's something called the Deep Mind Project. It uses artificial intelligence to crack thorny problems. And recently, it did something that is incredible. In biology, we have proteins which carry out the work of DNA. Proteins do all the work. DNA is nothing but a blueprint. But the $64,000 question is, how does the protein molecule carry out the instructions of the DNA? How's it done? It's done by protein folding. A protein is a very complicated object, sometimes consisting of thousands of atoms, and they curl up in a very precise way, and they can unlock other proteins and other membranes, and they do their magic this way. It's sort of like a key going into a lock. Now, it turns out that Scientists have spent entire careers trying to map these protein molecules and how they fold. Well, there's a computer that does it. In fact, the authors of the Deep Mind program now boast that they can unravel the secret of every single human protein. This is amazing, absolutely amazing, because proteins are what do the magic of DNA in our body. A simple example, take a look at Alzheimer's disease. Some people think that Alzheimer's disease is the disease of the century. And some people believe that Alzheimer's disease is caused by protein molecules which fold up incorrectly, called prions or prions. They in turn bump into other 
molecules and deform them, and it propagates this avalanche of deformed protein molecules. Well, that requires a knowledge of how protein molecules fold up, and that's what this computer program apparently can do. So this is big news. Again, the news that artificial intelligence will be the key to numerically calculate how every single human protein folds and does its magic inside the body. Also, another discovery was made recently concerning the aging process. Why do we get old? Why do we eventually die? Well, one theory says it has to do with a clock, a biological clock in our cells called the telomeres, which get shorter and shorter every time the cell divides. Finally, they get so short that the chromosome falls apart after about 60 reproductions. The cell goes into senescence and it dies. That's why, in some sense, you are programmed to die. But you can stop this process with something called telomerase. But you see, cancer cells also use telomerase to become immortal. Why does cancer kill you? Precisely because cancer cells are immortal, they push out mortal cells, that is, healthy cells, and that's why you die, because of a tumor. Well, now people have been able to find the origin of the instructions that guide telomerase. So this is very interesting. First of all, let me make clear that this does not mean that this is the secret of the fountain of youth. This is perhaps a piece of the fountain of youth. That is, a reproducible body of evidence showing that scientists have been able to work out the instructions by which the cell creates and activates telomerase, which in turn stops the clock. In other words, every skin cell is programmed to die. Wouldn't it be great to stop the clock? Well, cancer cells do that. That's why they form tumors. But now scientists have been able to find the genetic sequence which allows the body to make telomerase. Telomerase, in turn, stops the clock. So why isn't telomerase the fountain of youth? Because it's a very potentially dangerous chemical. Because it immortalizes cells, it means that cells can become cancerous. So in other words, a new verb has been added to the English language. Immortalization. That's right. We can now immortalize cells so they never die. You can take a skin cell, and instead of dividing 60 times, which is the normal age limit, you can now make them divide thousands of times. These skin cells are essentially immortal. However, you have to be careful because they could become cancerous. So the point is that when the fountain of youth is finally discovered, this could be one of a series of mechanisms which make it all possible. So once again, don't believe the fads. Don't believe that there's a magic potion out there which is going to stop the clock somehow and make you live forever. In fact, by the way, I should point out there's only one way in which to extend the human lifespan that we know of, which works in animals. Every animal tested has shown that you can extend their lifespan. This is called caloric restriction. You eat 30% less, you live 30% longer. Well, that's great, right? Eat 30% less, live 30% longer. 
But who wants to do that? Who wants to have to starve themselves? And as I mentioned, every living organism has been tested according to this rule, except for one. One organism has not been tested, and that is Homo sapiens, you and me. concludes the first half of exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, and this is Exploration. And if you want to know more about my work, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. In the second half of exploration, we're going to pursue this idea of longevity by bringing on Professor Jay Olshansky, an expert in the question of one day, one day will we be able to extend the human lifespan and conquer aging. Stay tuned. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first part of Exploration, we summarize some of the top stories in science, and in the second part of Exploration, we'll talk about the aging process. Our special guest today is Dr. Jay Olshansky, one of the world's leading authorities on the aging process, author of the book, The Quest for Immortality. And we're going to try to separate the hype from the reality of what's happening inside the universities and learning centers of the world. Now, of course, the search for immortality is not a new one. In fact, one of the oldest texts of all time, predating the Bible, is the Tales of Gilgamesh. In fact, many of the passages from the Tales of Gilgamesh were later incorporated into the Bible. And what was Gilgamesh doing? Well, it turns out that he was searching for the Fountain of Youth. And so the search for Fountain of Youth is an old one, dating all the way back to prehistory. Not to mention the fact that in Asian folklore, Emperor Qin was the first emperor to unify China in around the year 200 B.C. However, even though he could conquer as far as the eye could see, he could not conquer the wrinkles on his face. He was getting old. And so, to conquer the aging process, he assembled all his princes and explorers, and he gave them a mission. Go out and find the Fountain of Youth, or don't come back. Well, obviously they did not find the Fountain of Youth, because Emperor Chen did in fact die. However, since they couldn't come back, perhaps the princes and explorers of Emperor Qin went on to found Korea and Japan. Not to mention the fact that Ponce de Leon was searching for the Fountain of Youth and instead he found the great state of Florida. So it's an old dream, but it's a dream that has drawbacks. 
First of all, we have not found anything resembling the Fountain of Youth, but we also have Greek mythology. And in Greek mythology, we have the legend of Eos, the goddess of the dawn. Well, goddesses, of course, are immortal, but she had the misfortune of falling in love with a mortal, Tithonus. And so she pleaded with Zeus, the father of all the gods, to give the gift of immortality to her lover. Well, Zeus took pity on the goddess of the dawn, and so he granted her wish. And in fact, Tithonus became immortal. However, Eos made a big mistake, a huge mistake. She forgot to ask for the gift of eternal youth as well. And so her lover simply got older and older and older, but could never die. That was his fate. And so people who search for immortality also have to wonder, will we suffer the fate of Tithonus if we start to live forever? Will we live forever in decaying, dying bodies that cannot die? Well, now we have genetic engineering. And now we have a much deeper understanding of the molecular biology of the aging process. And so with us today is Dr. Jay Olshansky, who will talk to us today about why do we have to get old? And now I'd like to bring on our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Professor S.J. Olshansky. He's a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and he's also a research institute at the Center on Aging at the University of Chicago. Well, if you've been to the drugstore, you've probably been hit with all these advertising saying that you can retard the aging process, even roll back the hands of time, live longer, they say. But what about the truth? The truth about human growth hormone, antioxidants, massive doses of vitamins and minerals and herbs and supplements. What about the hardcore truth and scientific verification of these claims? And also, what about genetics? We seem to be teasing apart many of the genes that influence the aging process. So once again, we're going to bring on our special guest today, Professor Jay Olshansky, and he's the co-author of a book called The Quest for immortality. So that's the subject of today's discussion, immortality. I understand that today you and other prominent scientists have issued a, a policy statement, a recommendation of sorts that could have serious uh, and beneficial economic benefits. Uh, could you elaborate? Yes. Uh, this is uh, based on an article we published in The Scientist back in March of uh, this year uh, with Rich Miller from the University of Michigan. Uh, Dan Perry from the Alliance for Aging Research, and Bob Butler from the International Longevity Center in New York. And we basically uh, suggested that the time has arrived for uh, societies, uh, not just the United States, but really all nations, to begin investing in an effort to slow the biological process of aging in people. Uh, and the logic and the rationale is fairly straightforward. Uh, basically, what we're suggesting is, is that a 
even a small uh, deceleration or slowdown in the rate of biological aging uh, of just a few years would actually yield huge economic and health benefits. Um, I mean, think of it this way. The way the NIH is currently set up is essentially to d deal with one disease at a time independent of all others. But if you can find a way to slow down the biological process of aging, you would essentially postpone everything that is negative associated with growing older into later and later ages. It would be, even, it would be as if you, you achieved a major discovery for every major fatal and non-fatal disease if you could find a way to slow aging. So we're calling on Congress to begin investing in a concerted effort to slow the biological process of aging in, in people. Yes, in fact, the social benefits could be astronomical, especially as you look at the baby boomers that are hitting 60 and will eventually uh, increase medical costs uh, tremendously in this country. Yes, I mean, the prevalence of, uh, of conditions of frailty and disability will rise dramatically in the coming decades with the aging of the baby boom cohort. Uh, so slowing that process even a little bit would actually uh, enable people to be uh, healthier longer, uh, contribute uh, to the economy longer. They would just uh, just everything positive uh, associated with um, with uh, with aging. There are positive things associated with aging would uh, be extended. Uh, so it would be it would be uh, an, an extraordinarily important. Uh, event for national economies, for public health. Uh, I, it, really, the time has arrived, I think. And not only has the time arrived, but the science is approaching the level at which I think we're beginning to gain enough understanding that we think we can do this in humans. We know we can do it in other animals. Um, we think we can do this in humans. Okay, now let's get back to Earth and uh, talk about hokum, snake oil, and real science. Uh, if you visit the drugstore, you realize that there are whole shelves full of herbs and remedies and vitamins, making all sorts of promises about retarding the aging process, reversing the years. So let's now talk about the science, that is, what is known experimentally. Let's start with the Internet, where we have lots of advertisements for human growth hormone. Now, in some sense, are the people of America being used as guinea pigs for this gigantic experiment on human growth hormone, or what are your thoughts? Well, uh, actually, uh, people are using themselves as guinea pigs. It's absolutely remarkable that, uh, you know, you can go on the Internet and find every conceivable nutritional supplement and hormone, including growth hormone, uh, with people with no expertise in the field claiming that it can slow, stop, or reverse the biological process of aging. And people believe this. They spend enormous sums of money. They order this stuff over the Internet. They inject themselves with it or take these pills. And there isn't a shred of, shred of evidence that it'll make you live any longer. There actually is some evidence, some suggestive evidence, that some of these substances, including growth hormone, have the potential to actually shorten your life. Uh, so it's remarkable that people are conducting a biological experiment on themselves. It doesn't mean that there isn't value necessarily to some nutritional supplements, particularly for people who are deficient in certain vitamins and minerals. Uh, there's no question that there is a benefit for those individuals. But if your diet is so bad that you're deficient in some major uh, vitamin or mineral or, uh, you know, or, or something, um, that uh, these, uh, these vitamin supplements aren't going to uh, make up the difference. It simply isn't going to work. And there's no evidence that it actually extends life. 
And what about the side effects of human growth hormones? Some people think maybe cancer or other kinds of diseases associated with accelerating metabolism. Uh, it's like a sports car. If you were to accelerate a sports car, you'd throw off a few gears here, here and there. And that, of course, means cancer, because cancer, in some sense, is genetic errors. Uh, but what are your thoughts about side effects of human growth hormone? Well, um, first of all, uh, it has been demonstrated that there are some benefits, believe it or not, uh, associated with growth hormone including increased muscle mass and uh, reduction in the rate of bone loss and improved skin elasticity. So you can't deny the fact that there have been benefits associated with it. But accompanying those benefits have been uh, risks, including carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, increased risk of diabetes. There is suggestive evidence that it might increase the risk of cancer. The fact is, is that it hasn't been properly studied yet using clinical trials in humans. Uh, and so before those clinical trials are in, before we know what the results are, it's really premature to be using these kinds of substances. And again, once again, with the case of growth hormone, there isn't any evidence that it extends life. Okay. Now, moving on, when you go to the drugstore, you see these advertisements for megavitamins. Uh, some claim that it retards uh, the oxidation process. Other people cite certain studies which show that if you ingest certain diets, diets rich in vitamins, it seems to be good for you. But what about the pure, the pure form of vitamins that you buy in the drugstore? Well, um, well, once again, um, you know, the, the nutritional supplement uh, industry is really working hard to convince us that aging is somehow caused by... Uh, uh, either the loss of some hormone or the lack of nutritional supplements of one kind or another, and they're perfectly willing to sell you uh, everything that that, uh, that that they can to try to convince you that you can somehow influence this process. Uh, and it's based in part on a uh, on, on on science, uh, where it's suggested that uh, that aging is influenced by oxidation, uh, and this oxidation process can be. Uh, uh, slow down in theory with the ingestion of uh, certain nutritional supplements that have antioxidative effects. Um, but there isn't any empirical evidence that demonstrates that these substances actually extend duration of life. Uh, so once again, it's the same scenario uh, where people are selling something with exaggerated claims uh, with a profit motive uh, in mind, and uh, people are buying it up like crazy. And what about herbs? Some people say that maybe pure vitamins that are refined by the chemical companies may not uh, simulate uh, vitamins in the natural forms. So what about taking herbal medicines? What is known or not known about herbs? Now, honestly, I don't, I don't know that much about her, uh, herbs and herbal medicines um, to comment uh, on that. But what I can tell you is, is, that, is that there's plenty of evidence that eating more fruits and vegetables and uh, can certainly in, uh, lower your risk of a wide variety of diseases and disorders. Uh, and, of course, those in the supplement is, industry are suggesting that contained within those fruits and vegetables there are certain substances that they can concentrate in a pill and give to you in a larger form, you know, under the assumption that more is better. Well, there is where the evidence is lacking. There, the evidence is there that eating more fruits and vegetables is good for you, the evidence is lacking that the nutritional supplements containing the vitamins that they think are causing the beneficial effect, uh, the evidence there is lacking that that will have any significant effect. Okay, now moving on, let's talk about something that actually does work. Uh, I think 
All scientists would say unanimously that there is one and only one proven way, in the animal kingdom anyway, of actually increasing the lifespan of animals. We don't know whether it works for humans yet. But let's talk about caloric restriction. First of all, what is it, and uh, what tests have been done? Well, this you're right. This is the uh, one intervention that's been demonstrated repeatedly to extend duration of life on a wide variety of species. Uh, it's basically reducing your caloric intake. It can, you know, vary. The percentage can vary from anywhere from 10 to 30 percent below maintenance levels. Um, so it would depend on what your current uh, height and weight is. But you know, if your normal caloric intake is uh, 2,000 calories to maintain your weight, you might be reducing it down to 15, for example, 1,500 uh, calories. Um, and the and no one exactly knows. Uh, why it works or how it works, the underlying mechanism, but there is consistent research suggesting that it extends duration of life. Now, the question is, how does it do so? Does it extend duration of life by slowing the biological process of aging? Some people believe that to be the case. Others suggest that it actually extends duration of life by reducing the risk of a wide variety of diseases and disorders, which is not the same as slowing the biological process of aging. Um, remember, if you reduce the risk of uh, heart disease, cancer, and stroke, however you do that through exercise or diet, the aging process marches on. It's uninfluenced by that. Um, but if indeed you're slowing down the biological process of aging, then everything negative associated with it is dragged to later ages. It's postponed to later ages. And that would actually be a wonderful thing if caloric restriction was the mechanism that actually uh, worked. Now, don't expect, by the way, that people are going to be living longer by reducing, dramatically reducing their caloric intake. What the scientists are looking for is the underlying mechanism to find a way to mimic that process without actually reducing your caloric intake. It should be obvious, by the way, that in the United States and elsewhere, we're doing the exact opposite. We are increasing our caloric intake. We are growing more obese at a more rapid pace um, than we ever have in the past. So this research is particularly important and is interesting for a wide variety of reasons. Okay. Now, caloric restriction works on yeast cells, uh, spiders, insects, uh, mice. And now, for the first time, we're getting the first preliminary evidence uh, from primate studies done in Bethesda, Maryland. So can you tell us a little bit about some of those experiments? Because primates, of course, are closer to us and uh, perhaps it may work on organisms as complex as us. But what are your thoughts? Well, my guess is it probably will. I mean, the work of Richard Weinrich from uh, Wisconsin and other researchers uh, at NIH and Bethesda uh, have, I think, demonstrated quite convincingly that reducing caloric intake can lower the risk of disease. Probably it will extend duration of life. We have to wait for these animals to live long enough to determine whether or not uh, that's going to be one of the consequences. But there's... There are a couple of problems here. In the, some of the earlier studies, you need to remember that the control animals that were used in the caloric restriction studies were fed ad libitum, uh, meaning they had as much food as they wanted, which is sort of like us. Uh, and so whenever you reduce your caloric intake uh, relative to eating as much as you want, what you are demonstrating is more the uh, detrimental effect of a gluttonous lifestyle rather than the longevity-enhancing effect of caloric restriction. So you have to be careful on, on how you interpret that. Now, in more recent studies, the control animals are not fed ad libitum. They are, are fed really more of a maintenance diet. Um, and you're not seeing quite the large uh, differences in 
uh, duration of life in these two populations when you do it that way. Nevertheless, you do see reductions in the risk of uh, a wide variety of diseases and disorders, and we would all be better off if we reduced our caloric intake. Whether it would work in humans at the level that we see in the, these other species, I think is highly questionable. And there's a real concern when, uh, for example, you extend the duration of life of a fruit fly or, uh, or a roundworm nematode by three, four, or five-fold. Real, it's real tempting for researchers to then multiply the human life expectancy by three, four, or five and suggest that the same effect if it occurred in humans would make us live hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, my guess is we wouldn't see anywhere near that kind of uh, magnitude, uh, increase in magnitude and duration of life in humans. But if we could, you know, live healthier longer for just, you know, an extra five or ten years, that would be huge. Okay, now I understand that the animals that have been studied uh, seem to be a little bit lethargic uh, because they have such a restricted diet. They have less cancerous tumors, uh, less incidences of diseases associated with the aging process, but they also seem to lack an interest in the sex drive. That is, all the things that uh, make uh, life worth living, joie de vivre, uh, these animals seem to be pretty lethargic. Uh, is that true? Yeah, so I understand that there is a appears to be a price uh, to pay. There appears to be uh, lower fecundity, um, less interest in uh, sex, and I think a difficult problem with controlling body temperature. Uh, these animals uh, are cold, in fact, uh, feel cold. And in fact, in the case of humans who are conducting this experiment on themselves, they're essentially reporting the same thing. Um, so there is a price, at least for now, to be paid by adopting this calorically restricted uh, diet, which is why, as I suggested earlier, re reducing your caloric intake to these kinds of levels probably isn't the way it's going to work in humans. The way it's probably going to work in humans is that scientists will try to find some sort of mimetic, something that will uh, fool the body into believing that it's cal calorically restricted to achieve the same effect uh, without actually reducing significantly reducing your caloric intake like that. And that's probably... Uh, way it will work, and, and that's, it's extremely valuable and interesting uh, research that needs to be aggressively uh, pursued because there's such great potential there. Okay, now let's leave the animal kingdom and talk, and talk strictly about humans. Uh, in your book, you mentioned the fact that the uh, life expectancy for Americans at the beginning of the 20th century was not very long at all, less than 50 years of age. And yet there's been an increase uh, into the 70s uh, since then. Some people think it's sanitation. Other people think it's antibiotics and vaccines. But what are your thoughts about looking at the long-term, the long-term life expectancy of humans going back to ancient days, uh, through the Middle Ages, uh, to the turn of the century, to present-day times? Well, going back to, to ancient times, uh, there's evidence to suggest that life expectancy, for example, during the time of the uh, ancient Egyptians, was probably somewhere in the 20s. Nobody knows exactly where it was, but it's likely to have been in the 20s. Uh, we've, we achieved a very small incremental increase over uh, the millennia to the beginning of the 20th, uh, uh, the beginning of the, the 19th and 20th centuries, when life expectancy rose up to about uh, between 45 and 50, uh, in the United States anyway. Um, 
And then you saw this quantum leap in life expectancy during the 20th century from uh, you know, 50 to close to 80. And that was largely attributable to dramatic reductions in early age mortality, infant, child, and maternal mortality, principally as a result of uh, sanitation, uh, public health, refrigeration, uh, foods, and so forth. It's, you know, the introduction of antibiotics uh, occurred after most of the declines in the death rate uh, occurred at younger ages and contributed relatively uh, a small amount to the rise in life expectancy in the 20th century. Now, in the latter part of the 20th century, there have been notable reductions in death rates at middle and older ages, even from heart disease, from some forms of cancer. Um, and so you, you see you know, two forces contributing during the 20th century. The early age mortality declines at the beginning, and the later age mortality declines at the end, uh, which explains, by the way, why the more recent increases in life expectancy have been smaller than the ones that occurred at the beginning of the 20th, 20th century. When you save children from dying, you add very rapidly to life expectancy. When you save middle-aged and older people from dying uh, from uh, fatal diseases, chronic fatal diseases, you add rel a relatively smaller amount. Now, it turns out that Japanese women have some of the longest life expectancies on the planet Earth. Uh, it's almost approaching 90. So we're talking about 50% uh, of Japanese women uh, essentially getting into their late 80s and into their 90s. Some people say it's diet, a fish diet that's low in fat. But uh, what are your thoughts about the demographics of different societies? Well, first of all, for, the, for Japanese women, it's just above 85. It might be approaching 86. And, mm -hmm. and you have to realize that, that um, there's a huge difference between 85 and 90. It's not the same as between 50 and 55. Uh, and the reason is fairly straight, straightforward. Um, you know, to raise life expectancy up when you're at these very high levels is extremely difficult because you're, you know, you're pushing up against uh, the basic biological process of aging itself. There's no question that subgroups of the population, such as those in Okinawa, Japan, for example, have, have much higher life expectancies. The actual force involved is, is not yet understood. Um, it's not like we can, here in the U.S., adopt the lifestyle of the Japanese. I know some people have suggested this, including some friends of mine um, who study the, the Okinawa diet, uh, suggested that you can somehow get Americans to live as long as the Okinawans by, have, by adopting this particular lifestyle. And there's no evidence to suggest that that would be the case, unless, of course, we were all Japanese here in the United States, and that isn't the case. Um, you know, there are genetic factors that are influencing uh, uh, the risk of death and, and, uh, and duration of life, and those are things that we simply cannot control, um, uh, at least not yet, anyway. Uh, but there's no question that subgroups of the population do experience greater longevity than other subgroups, and that is a fascinating area to study, by the way, because it would appear as though there are genes that exist within the human genome that influence duration of life, and they may be more highly concentrated in some subgroups relative to others. Okay, now let's talk about genes, because that's, of course, where most of the breakthroughs are being made in the last few years. Again, there's no fountain of youth. Uh, no, in, no one in the genetics area is claiming to have solved the aging process, but there's been lots of very interesting studies. Uh, first of all, there's something called progeria, a genetic disease that's been intensely studied in which children 
children die of old age. Uh, they look like plucked chickens, and they die of heart attacks as teenagers. Uh, could you elaborate on that very strange disease? Well, it appears on this progeria appears on the surface, anyway, to be a phenomenon of accelerated aging. Uh, but there's evidence to suggest it is not. There are lots of things that don't occur uh, in these uh, children that occur in the aging phenotype of, of uh, individuals who actually do make it out to, to older ages. So I would be cautious about, uh, about thinking of progeria as accelerated uh, aging. Um, it is certainly interesting to study these individuals, and you have to realize that it's always easy to do something to yourself that will accelerate aging. I mean, you know, we and we do it all the time, quite frankly. And one of my uh, the arguments that I've made for many years is is that the only control we have over the duration of our life is to shorten it, and we exercise that control all the time when we adopt lifestyles that are, uh, you know, where we expose ourselves to the sun, or we don't exercise, or we smoke cigarettes, or or use drugs. These are the kinds of things that can uh, make us die at much younger ages than would otherwise be the case. Well, unfortunately, our time is up. Once again, you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Jay Olshansky, author of the book, The Quest for Immortality. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. Once again, for a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for Exploration. Join us every week when we discuss the cutting edge of science and how it impacts on society. Good day.